169th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. Happy 35th birthday to Virat Kohli. Now, Toby, me and you share a birth year. 1988, me, you and Virat Kohli, all born in the same year. Do you feel our cricketing achievements are, you know, similar planes to India's captain? Well, I have to say I do feel certain resonances when it comes to career trajectory. Um... And maybe this is the time that we should have our kind of midlife crisis chat. Have you yet given up on the idea of playing international cricket? I think there's a small part of me that believes that that one season, one season, it'll just all click. And despite the fact that I've got zero hand-to-eye coordination or technique, that it'll just happen. I think the symbolic moment for me was when Joe Root became England captain because at that point the England captain was younger than me so it's quite it's quite hard to keep your dreams going at that stage although later mm. in this episode we will of course be reading a book which involves a 50 year old getting an England recall so exactly you know, an inspiration eternal. an inspiration to us all um, and before that we're going to be talking uh, a little bit about the World Cup we're going to be talking a little bit about um, an Australian cricketer you've probably never heard of And then we're going to be reviewing that book, First of the Summer Wine by Harry Pearson. Now, where we started off was was quite apt talking about our cricketing um, careers because um, you haven't had the most um, rampaging summer on the cricket pitch. Uh, No, I haven't. Um, Aside from the pandemic season, so I guess 2020 and also the time I spent living in Paris, this summer just passed has been the first in a long time that I haven't played a cricket match. Um, I could put it all down to becoming a parent. It's a very easy thing, isn't it, when you're a parent? Mm. You can blame lots of, lots of things. You, you know, certainly some, can. Sometimes fairly, sometimes less fairly on parenthood. It's a very but convenient I, excuse for almost anything that goes wrong in your life. And, uh, yes, and it's, it's hard to challenge, isn't it? But I'd, I have to be honest and say I think I had already been playing less over the last couple of years. Um, and I was kind of reflecting on this and thinking that I've realised that for me, I think playing less often can make playing less fun. I think... It is a treat when you only play a handful of games mm. a season. So you get out and play and you think, God, oh, what, a, what a thrill to be out there. You know, great to have whites on again and that sort of thing. But I think on a playing level, you don't get any sort of form. And it might surprise you that I've never played to just to pile on the runs. But as we've, I think, talked about before in this podcast, cricket is really hard. It's a very hard mm. sport. And I think it's even harder when you're never, you know, you're not playing regularly. The other thing about that, I think, is the sort of internal narrative that however uncompetitive you are and however you're ha- much you're happy to play for the joy of the game rather than your personal performances, there is something about, you know, if you're a batsman, you get out for a third ball duck and then you're not going to play again for another 10 weeks and, and you know that. There is something, I think, that grates a little bit about that, whereas when you know you're coming back next week, it's kind of easier to take the highs and the lows with equanimity. I think that's definitely right. I think when you're playing regularly, particularly as a batsman, you make peace with the fact you will get X number of ducks a season. You know, that's just mm. the nature of the game or X number of low scores a season. Um, and that's harder when you're when you're playing rarely. Um, then there's, I think, the question of the, the wider team. And I think when I was in my 20s and I was often playing maybe 12 to 15 games a season, you build close relationships with your teammates and you gain some friendships for life. And I think when you're playing much more rarely, it's very hard to have those same sort of relationships. And there's also that sense of you feel, well, am I contributing as I should? You know, am I occasionally, am I taking someone's place who I shouldn't be and, and, and this sort of thing? 
Um, I would like to reassure you and our listeners that I'm not retiring. You know, I was going to say, was this a preamble to a was great this? announcement? This, this was. I was starting to get quite moved actually. I'm wondering I'd have to do I the obligatory uh, Twitter post and you know mm. about thanking my friends and family, etc., for for and everything. Your and my hairdresser. <laughs> I don't know if I'm thanking my hairdresser actually. We'll we'll see about that. To 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 lose me and Sir Alistair in just a few weeks would obviously be a lot for for the nation to take. Um, playing in beautiful corners of the countryside, that post-match analysis over pints, and just very occasionally the feeling of a well-timed straight drive. There is still so much I I love about playing the game. But I think I, like many other 30-somethings, I'm now sort of working out how it best uh, fits into life. And it's interesting as well the question of um, how clubs accommodate people who are um, sort of only playing occasional games as well. Because so often there is an expectation that you're there kind of week in week out i'm very fortunate to play for a team that is is occasional in the um, broadest um, sense (laughs) of the um in fact i was supposed to be playing first second game of the season this afternoon but it was but it was pouring with rain one of the things um i found quite lovely over the last year talking of being a parent and how that fits around your cricketing life is that um we're actually now at the stage where my wife and son kind of come to cricket games together to to watch and that actually has been if anything it kind of added impetus to get out and, and play because then it's not a disruption to the kind of parenting routine but it's sort of the opposite although he does get sometimes get a bit upset when he feels like he's arbitrarily stopped from kind of coming and running up to me by this strange kind of white line in the white this, line in the ground this this unreasonable boundary that's between uh, between you and your child yeah no i'm very much i'm very much hoping to get to that stage because i think we've all played with people who who i think often get a sort of second light second lease of life for the game when their family can come along or even in some situations when they get to play with a, a son or yep. daughter so that that's a real treat totally. um now from uh you know the, the my cricketing future to well very much the cricketing present and it's been a sort of cricketing present that i think most england fans have just tuned out of entirely well i have to say you know if ever there was a time that we were going to get our england call up it probably would have been over the last um few weeks given how things have been going in the one day campaign and it was just um yesterday or today depending on whose time zone you're in um that uh, england were beaten by australia and the final nail in the one day in world cup coffin was 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 hammered in um a lot's been said about what's gone wrong with this particular England England campaign. Um, and to be honest, after a while, you sort of zone out of multiple commentators sort of saying the same thing. So that was why I was really interested in Mark Ramprakash's um, column, I think, the day before yesterday in The Guardian, um, where Ramprakash really delves into this question of, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, the England squad being a bit ageing and, you know, potentially over the hill. But he really delves into this question, OK, why is it that that actually means that the campaign hasn't gone the way that it the way that it might have done and he talks about the fact that you train um when you're a more when you're a group of more experienced players you kind of train more economically you know exactly what you need to train on you don't waste energy you know doing extraneous um training um but he talks about this kind of fine and very rather invisible line between training in that kind of very targeted and very conservative way and doing the minimum 
and it's that it's a line that's actually very difficult for, for players to, to judge. And he uses the example of during the 2016-17 Ashes when he was part of the coaching team and um, there was a real sense that, that England were going to be faced with some really quick bowling. And so he wanted to get the batsmen out into the nets and facing some really fast stuff. So he got some balls in a fast net and he was kind of absolutely hammering them down at the batsmen. And a lot of the batsmen were kind of saying, um, oh, I, I don't want to do this because this isn't part of my routine. This is not what I'm doing. I'm experienced. I don't... What, what to do this whereas some people like Joe Root were saying yeah I need to do something different often the issue is with the really experienced players that they don't have that um, ability and that willingness to want to really mix things up when a campaign's going wrong as this one has been it's interesting coming from Ramprakash because obviously there's always been this thing about his his success at um, domestic level and then struggle sometimes to translate mm. the test level but his trademark I often felt was his intensity wasn't it you, you he yeah. was someone who you'd never accuse of sort of going going soft would you um I've I don't know whether I'm going soft but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts I found it difficult to get too wound up or frustrated about this there's been the predictable thing in the media around you know disgraceful worst world cup campaign ever blah 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 but i just sort of feel england won in 2019 they won the 2020 world cup last year it, it, it just feels to me maybe maybe i'm part of the problem you know maybe i should be demanding more and sustain success but like i just i'm sort of philosophical about the fact that this stuff goes in cycles how how, how frustrating have you found it well it's interesting i don't really find it frustrating either i suppose i watch a i really enjoy 50 over cricket and i have watched quite a lot of it but I don't um I can't kind of find myself I suppose because there are now three now there's a test world cup there are now three world cups and so I often find myself watching world cups as a bit of a sort of disinterested observer not really following any particular team to be honest um so yeah I think it is a it is a kind of curious phenomenon at the moment to be an, an English um cricket fan and I suppose as well we feel we all feel quite close to a lot of these players and there is a sense of the kind of dad's army um scene of them you know you can't be too hard on them given what they've been doing it's more a question of the structure around them that hasn't necessarily brought through the brought through players to really push them for their positions From the archives, and in this episode, Toby is going to tell us about perhaps the greatest Australian cricketer that you've never heard of. So Greg Mail doesn't seem like a natural cricketing record breaker. If you look at pictures of him and you see a man who is twig thin, um, he looks nervous and standoffish in most of his official headshots, and his closely cropped ginger hair possibly seems, seems more likely on a banker, which is in fact what he now is. Um, then, of course, there's the fact that particularly if you don't live over this side of the world, you've almost certainly uh, never heard of him. And nor had I until a couple of weeks ago when I was flicking through Crick Info, as you do on a you know quiet afternoon at work. Um, and I came across a photo of a scoreboard and every other name on the scoreboard I instantly knew. It was legends of 1990s um, Australian cricket. You know, it was sort of, you know, Ponting, Bourne, McGrath, Hayden, Gilchrist, Gillespie. And then the halfway down the scoreboard, I saw G.J. Mail. And I thought, that's that's got to be a typo. It's got to be a typo. But then I delved a little deeper down the Crick Info rabbit hole to find out more about our friend Gregory John Mail. 
Um, the first thing that's curious about him is that he has a list of records and achievements uh, as long as your arm. He's the only New South Wales player to both carry their bat and score a century in each innings of a first-class game. Um, in Sydney first-grade cricket, he holds the records for the second-highest partnership, 390 runs, and his total runs scored remains a record, 15,242 runs scored in 12 years and across 383 innings before his retirement in 2017. We talk a lot, obviously, in county cricket, the sort of 1,000 runs as being a kind of year standard, and you look at that record, record over 12 mm. years is, is remarkable isn't it I mean it's, it's averaging comfortably over a thousand runs a season um, which I think at any level is, is, is a remarkable level of achievement and consistency over 15,000 runs definitely um, and you, you mentioned county cricket and that raises the question of um, first grade cricket and what first grade cricket is because I think people who aren't necessarily familiar with Australian cricket may not may not be aware of that essentially it's the level of club cricket that sits below state cricket so it's the pool of players from which state players are picked and then the team the test team is then or the international teams are then picked from the state team so it's called sort of two rungs down and unlike i suppose in county cricket where obviously i should know this off the top of my head do you know off the top of your head how many counties there are in england uh Andy desperately well, Googles. Eight, 18 and says, uh, first class, he... and then of the minor counties, there are, I don't know. <laughs> so so eight, 18 first class counties. Um, state and territory teams in Australia, there are what, six? Again, I should know that off the top of my head. Um, but let's say there are six. And so that's only six four-day teams. So the level of grade cricket um, is very, very high. It's not like kind of minor counties sitting beneath counties it's like kind of county level um county level county level cricket um so it's two rungs down from international cricket and in sydney it's particularly in sydney it's it's a hard forward and high quality um scene because everyone's keen to impress and move up that rung into the state team and then give themselves the chance of international um selection but it's also impressive because of the quality of the players so a lot of international players actually as youngsters and not necessarily kind of at school age but at the beginning of their professional career spent time in grade cricket um in in sydney so um andrew strauss graham thorpe kevin peterson all did stints um jeffrey boycott going a bit further back as well um all all players go through grade cricket um almost without exception so when you look at these clubs um they read like a who's who of New South Wales and Australian cricket, cricketing greats. So just to name a few whose name begin with S, Stuart Clark, Stuart McGill, Steve Smith and Simon Cattage all played Sydney grade cricket. And they would all have played Sydney grade cricket until they were you know, relatively well advanced into their careers um, uh, because state players often return to first grade, grade cricket when they have the chance. So if they're not playing state cricket, they'll come back and they'll play for their first grade team. So it's actually not unusual to see a test player or someone who has a test career be playing in first grade cricket. So the, the, so the standard is particularly um, It's often high. been pointed to as one of the real successes of the Australian system, this exact thing, as you say, between that, that um, easy movement between the states and the top mm. clubs. And I mean, you do get like a bit of it in the UK, like you'll occasionally hear that a county has picked up a, a senior pro at a top club, but it's nothing like that same sort of, that same level of connection. 
the regularity. Do, do exactly. you have a sense, obviously, as a, as a now long-term Sydney resident, um, is there a sense of kind of loyalty and like areas in terms of if you live in area X of Sydney, then obviously your 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 um your grade one club is this, and is it, is it kind of distinct in that way, or is it messier than that? I think that because because there are a lot of clubs, um, I think players are often moving around to you know often hopping around between different clubs, so it's not necessarily the case that you just play at your local club and often i mean so within probably half an hour's drive of where i am now i could probably be at the grounds of five or six first grade clubs so it's not like the kind of county system where it means moving your entire Mm. life if you're going to move from lancashire to Mm. surrey it's a lot of clubs that are concentrated in the in a very small in a very small region as well um and just going back to the the you know the kind of the, the names that have played um, grade cricket, obviously going back to when the international schedule was was less packed. So whereas now it's a bit more of a sort of red letter day when you get an international test player playing grade cricket. Back in the day, people like Victor Trumper, Sydney Barnes, Bobby Simpson, Charlie McCartney all played hundreds of grade games all the way through their you know through their career when when the international schedule was less was less busy. So when you hear some of those names. And then you think of our friend, our new friend, Greg Mayle, you sort of realise the achievements of, of him, you know, topping those all-time all time run, run scorer um, leaderboards. Um, there's, of course, more to the story because, of course, we don't know about Greg Mayle. So how does someone who succeeds so much at this form of cricket um, not make it in necessarily the, the state or the, the test arena? Um, I suppose one thing in his favour is, is, is longevity. So a 12-year career that we talked about scored a lot of runs over that time um his cv makes for interesting reading he spent a few years in england at the very beginning of his career but since then he's really focused on just playing in sydney and during that time he's played for more than half the teams in the competition i think he's played for 12 different teams over that over that period often kind of changing in the middle of a season um and um it would be kind of, I suppose, difficult to imagine a county player playing for 10 different sides during their career. But again, the kind of nature of the setup is that you can hop between a lot of different um, a lot of different sides. So why was it that he didn't um, follow that ladder up through state and then international um, cricket? He did play for New South Wales. He never really thrived at that, that level. And he was really only there as a stopgap when there are international players in the side going off to international duty like Phil Jacques. Um, Simon Cadditch, Phil Hughes, um, and as soon as they came back from playing Test cricket, then then he got shunted back down down the ladder. Um, then he he would come back to Grey cricket and he would just terrorise bowling attacks with these kind of you know regularly scoring scoring hundreds. So he's one of these players that occupies a really interesting kind of middle ground where he was kind of too good for Grey cricket, but not quite good enough for State cricket. And that actually that not being quite good enough was his best ever career move because it meant that he never ended up being a mediocre state batsman. It meant he was always an absolutely superlative, um, great cricketer. I feel you could, it would be a very interesting afternoon in a, in a pub. You could build a list of these sorts of players that I think, as you say, fit into this really interesting twilight zone. They've sort of dominated the domestic game and then not quite made the step up. I mean, you, you you touched on we're talking about Mark, quite, Mark who Rapagash, I think is often yeah. sort of quoted again and again as a great English example and there's it's very interesting isn't it because I think sometimes we maybe attach everything to international level and I think we sometimes forget you know both the quality of the domestic game but also 
the incredible pride in it and, and effectively there is yes there's an awful lot to be said for dominating that level the review and for this episode we've been reading first of the summer wine george hurst schofield haig and wilfred rhodes it was published last year in 2022 and written by harry pearson who is a journalist and an author and a bit of a favorite of this podcast i think it's fair to say um in the past we've reviewed slipless in settle um a wonderful mix of history and travelogue in the northern leagues and connie which is his biography of leary constantine um both books won the cricket society and mcc book of the year so this um, book, First of the Summer Wine, is a group biography of three golden age Yorkshire cricketers um, who were known as a triumvirate. They took nearly 9,000 wickets between them and scored more than 77,000 runs. I don't think it's too late for us to knock up those um, those figures either. Um, the, um, uh, the sort of summarised by... Um, uh, a quotation from the book when asked who the greatest all-rounder in the history of cricket was the jokey response in Yorkshire was I don't know but he banded, batted right-handed bowled left-handed and came from Kirk Eaton Hurst and Rhodes both answered that description um, now I think it's fair to say Wilfred Rhodes certainly someone known to us George Hurst and Schofield Haig probably less so what did you learn about the development of these players and who these players were through these through this book I think, as you say, Hay was almost entirely new to me, um, and I, I knew a bit about Hurst, a bit about Rhodes. I, I think probably the, the, the biggest thing I learned was just their impact on the English game at that time. I mean, they really sort of did tower over it, um, and both as players in terms of what they achieved and as, and as, and as personalities as well. Um, it takes the approach of being a group biography rather than individual stories of the three. Um, which I think is, is really interesting because you get to compare and contrast them as cricketers and you also learn a lot about the relationship between between the three. And it's not forced as a group biography. I mean, you read the account and they were very, very close as, as, as a trio. Um, as cricketers, um, there is a sort of theme in this, I think, mm. which is about how you evolve as a player to survive. Um, you know, they had long careers, particularly Rhodes. Um, you could pick out lots and lots of aspects, but I was very struck on this thing that Rhodes really focused on his batting, to develop his batting, because he realised in a very practical way that, um, as he put it himself, an injury could finish a bowler with one snap. Um, and, you know, it's thinking partly about your future as well. I think it really contrasts with the sense now that you know who you are as a cricketer quite young by the age of 14 or 15 if you're not really, you know, knowing that you're a fast bowler and that's what you're training to become, that you don't necessarily have the career opportunities and as you say there's a real sense of kind of pragmatism to these um, players often um, kind of born out of the fact that for them this was a career that was an alternative to a mining career um, and there is the you know kind of very powerful um, description of um, of um, Schofield Hagen the fact that he throughout his entire career he feared being as he described it shunted back into being a miner and going back down the mines and that was his that was his greatest fear and so as you say they were kind of doing anything they could to survive and make their cricket careers as as long as they um and as I long think as they on possibly this could. idea of cricket as a career i was very struck and this was completely new to me was the role of lord hawk now he's someone we come across in our reading because he's mm. a sort of grand um 
dignitary of the sport. But I'd never really seen that in some ways he was a very progressive figure. So he ensured Yorkshire's players were paid mm-hmm. 50% more than their rivals. Um, there was a bonus system that was very, very generous. You know, a total season bonus could be up, worth up to £60 a year at a time when the annual wage was less than average annual wage in the country was less than 40 Perhaps most significantly, I thought, was this concept of winter pay and really interesting to see how far ahead he yes. was on this because lots of other counties were like, why are you paying players to do nothing? Um, and yeah, he clearly took seriously this yep. idea of, of cricket as a career. I was kind of amused and intrigued to see that he was also the person who introduced the idea that you should provide lunches for your players for a game that was going on for the whole day. Because otherwise, you know, the idea was you went out, was you went out, stood in the queue, and you waited for, um, you know, you waited for the the players to, you know, the the spectators to have their lunch, and then you bought whatever was there, and it ended up a game where one of his players, you know, had lunch on a kind of two penny sandwich and a bag of crisps or something, and he said, okay, this has to actually, this has to actually change, and it reminds you that. When you think of the great Yorkshire kind of cricketing dynasty, you know, we kind of have this romantic idea in our minds that it's born of, you know, people who were toughened in the mines and then went out and played tough cricket. But actually there's kind of business savvy and acumen that sits behind it as well. Yes, and you, you sort of see how they, they were trailblazers, you know, others others then others then followed. Um, it's worth us obviously paying a bit of attention to Pearson as a writer, as you covered in your introduction. Um, we reviewed two of his books before. He's a remarkable writer. And one of his distinct features, I think, is this combination of being a, a humorist and also a, a very serious historian. I think lots of people would struggle with that balance. I think it would jar, but I think it works for him. Um, I'll give you a, a, at least one of his lines. Um, I liked on George Hurst's, who had a sideline as a toffee maker. The toffees seem to have disappeared into the fog of history. His deeds remain. Um, I also liked on Lancashire Seamer Walter Brearley. He had local denture makers rubbing their hands in anticipation, the balls snorting and rising like a startled pheasant. So, um, yes, m- m- much to enjoy there. The other thing I suppose is that as while the book concentrates on this um, trio of players, um, we meet this kind of cast of fascinating characters along the way. Um, David Hunter was a guy who particularly, a wicket keeper who particularly stood out to me. He was a breeder of canaries and pigeons, um, a champion clog dancer, not something you can say about every wicket keeper. Um, and he would often purr from behind the stumps, well bowled honey, to encourage the, the bowl, which I thought was quite wonderful. The other thing I thought was interesting, the other kind of tidbit I, I picked up was that journalists, back when um, there weren't it took a long time to get reports back from Australia, for instance. Um, often journalists would stake out the wives of the players so that when they received letters, the wives would decide little you know, kind of um, anecdotes that they would then pass on to the journalists. And these would then form the backbone often of the reporting on overseas tours. So Wilfred Rhodes' wife would often be kind of feeding things from his letters to her um, that, would then, that would then go into the press as well. I thought that was amazing. It was an early sort of social media form, wasn't it? It was like, you know, Wilfred's enjoying his lunches abroad. It's these sort of little, little details. Um, Now, as we touched on, it's a group biography of Hay, Schofield and Rhodes. and We we learn a huge amount about the trio and their careers. But I think it's also not worth forgetting the last part of the book's kind of subtitle, which is this idea of the gentle heart of Yorkshire Mm. cricket. Pearson sees the three of them as having a warm and positive approach that is very different to the grim relentlessness that he sees as later taking over Yorkshire cricket. Um, 
I didn't think this theory was totally straightforward because I think Hearst in particular um, and Hay as well do fit this theory, you know, very smiley, welcoming and stuff. I think Rhodes was a bit less straightforward because he clearly did have a bit of the ruthless competitor in him. Um, he does touch a little bit, Pearson, on how it changed. But I did wonder a bit about, it, it would be fascinating, you know, he's such a good writer that to understand a bit more about how he thought the kind of grim win at all costs side take took over but um perhaps that's yeah, for another see how book. that kind of transition works i suppose you do get the sense at the end of the book though of this kind of wonderful um end of the era moment when um herbert and rhodes end up going as coaches to india mm. after the climate. It, it reminded me a little bit of have you seen the film tar where Lydia Tarr, the Oh, I desperately want to. Up. No, I haven't seen it. Um, well, I won't spoil it then, but it kind of had resonance. For those who've watched the film, the end of the film sort of has resonances of, of, of that. But then they both end up coaching Eton and Harrow, respectively, playing games against one another before Rhodes then goes back to Scotland as a pro for his last kind of engagement as a, as a, as a pro. And it's quite sad because he's described as um, trying to catch a ball after he'd already crossed the boundary because his kind of eyesight's... Going. So you sort of get the sense of the end of this era and the end of this kind of remarkable story that's been, well, this remarkable era that's been defined, I suppose, by, as you said at the, the top of this review, being def very much defined by these three pairs. So that was First of the Summer Wine by Harry Pearson. Um, comes with our sort of hearty recommendation. I think if you feel you know a bit about these figures already, you will know plenty more. Um, and yeah, a nice return to um, the golden age of cricket uh, from, a, from a Yorkshire perspective in particular. And that was episode 169 of Reverse Swept Radio. As ever, reach out for us on Twitter at Reverse Swept. And if you're feeling generous, leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And we will hear from us again soon. Thank you.